Charlie, uh, can you hear us? Uh, yes, I can. can okay, you hear me? so we've, we've got a good Zoom connection. My name's Sean Buckley. I'm going to be calling you as a witness today. So can I ask you first to state your full name for the record, spelling your first and last name? Charles Hooper, C-H-A-R-L-E-S-H-O-O-P-E-R. And Charles, do you promise to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth today? Yes, I do. So I, I just want to introduce you a little bit. Right now you're president of a consulting company called Objective Insights, and my understanding is, is that, you, that your company consults for pharmaceutical and biotech companies, that you basically help companies to make business decisions by doing forecast models that include uh, epidemiology. So for example, if a, a company was going to introduce a drug for third-line non-Hodgkin's lymphoma, I mean, how many, how many people are out there with that? And what public policy implications would, you know, would the company encounter? Your, your company does things like that. Or does, did I explain that well? Uh, yes, you did. So, Thanks, Sean. Now, you used to work for the pharmaceutical company Merck, and you were actually there when they um, came out with ivermectin. Yeah, I was there, um, I think it was just shortly after ivermectin first launched. Okay, and then we can't leave out that you worked at NASA as a scientific applications programmer. Yeah. Okay. Now... You became an expert on ivermectin, and I'm just curious if you can explain for us what led you down that path. Well, that's actually a good question. Um, so first of all, I knew a fair amount about ivermectin working at Merck, and um, um, Merck was actually quite proud of ivermectin when it first came out. And so I, I think when, when the COVID pandemic hit and I saw ivermectin mentioned, um, that I, I looked in a, into it a little bit more. I was kind of curious, having a little bit of background. And then that just kind of snowballed, and here we are. Right, so you just basically read everything, every study there, there was on ivermectin and, and became an expert, and bearing in mind you already have expertise in the pharmaceutical field and research. Right. Now, why should we care about ivermectin? Well, the... COVID-19 pandemic led to substantial loss of life along with um, social, uh, you know, large social and economic costs. And ivermectin uh, was presented and, and still is available as a potential drug to treat COVID-19. And, and I think that it has some legitimate claim to being a good treatment for COVID-19. And so therefore, you know, many people who suffered and potentially died maybe shouldn't have or wouldn't have if if COVID, if ivermectin was more widely available. Right. Okay, so can you explain for us, like, when the, when the pandemic started, obviously there was no vaccine or any other tool available. Um, can you explain to us kind of the importance of, of kind of the drugs that are on the market then at the time, specifically ivermectin, and, and, and why it should have been considered? Um, yeah, so when a pandemic um, um, happens, it, everything happens pretty quickly. And drug development is, is a very slow and, and, and lengthy process. And so, so we really have a mismatch of, of a fast-moving pandemic, you know, a, a, a contagious virus, and then a slow-moving pharmaceutical industry and a regulatory environment. And so by, by, by nature, we really need to look at existing drugs that are either already on the market or are soon to be on the market. Because... Anything else would just take so long to be developed that uh, the pandemic might have already run its course. And so, um, you know, so, so we, 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 we by nature have to look at, at older drugs. And it's actually a very well-known principle that using uh, repurposed medicines is, is a pragmatic um, and established uh, safety 
I'm sorry, using re repurposed medicines with established safety profiles is a pragmatic uh, health public health strategy. And so, so you know, people looked around at potential therapies that could work, and, and ivermectin showed up as one um, because of some of the characteristics it has to attack parasites. Um, also, can um, those mechanisms also attack viruses? And that, that was actually known before the pandemic started, am I correct? The antiviral activity of ivermectin? Um, I believe so, and, and if it wasn't before, it was definitely early on in the pandemic. Okay, I mean, I'm gonna ask you, you know, in a bit on your thoughts as to, you know, whether or not you think it would, is a safe treatment uh, and an effective treatment for COVID, but right away there was some controversy about ivermectin, and can you share with us about that? Yeah, so, if you followed the news over the last um, few years, um, essentially everything that's been said about ivermectin um, has been negative if it's been said by kind of the established authorities. And so, so first we heard that ivermectin was a veterinary parasitic medicine that was intended for horses and cows. Um, and then second, a number of health and regulatory agencies came out against its use, for example, the Food and Drug Administration in the States. And then even the um, originator and inventor of ivermectin, Merck and Company, came out against its use. Um, and then we also heard that the largest study that showed that ivermectin worked uh, was withdrawn, uh, retracted for data, data fraud. And then finally, we were told that the biggest and best study uh, of ivermectin, the TOGETHER trial, showed that ivermectin didn't work. And um, I think there, there's a need to set the record straight because that's not the, the whole truth. Okay, so can you set the record straight for us today? Yeah, I'd be happy to. Okay, so... Um, can I give you a little background on... Yeah, do you want a screen share? I think we're set up for that if you need to. Okay. Let's see. Um, oh, here we go. Okay, so we're seeing your screen now. We're seeing a slide ivermectin for COVID-19. Yeah, so um, so let me give you a little bit of background into, um, okay, so first of all, we mentioned just a minute ago that older drugs are the way to go when a pandemic happens. And so the three kind of drugs that I've focused on other than ivermectin to treat COVID-19 um, they were available at day 235, day 661, and day 662. And that's Gilead Sciences Vecluri. Um, the generic name is Remdesivir. Pfizer's Paxlovid, which is a combination of two older drugs. Um, and then Merck and Company's uh, Legevrio, which the generic name is uh, Molnupiravir. Um, but a little bit of history about ivermectin. Um, so uh, it's, it's an important drug, and some have actually estimated that its overall public health benefit might be on par with that of penicillin. Um, it was discovered in 1975 through the work of two individuals, William Campbell um, at the Merck Institute for Therapeutic Research and Satoshi Omura at Kitasato University. Um, and this discovery earned them the 2015 Nobel Prize in Physiology or Medicine. And um, ivermectin was um, first used as a veterinary uh, antiparasitic with human applications coming just a few years after that. And in the developing world, it's proven um, so effective that it's on the World Health Organization's list of essential medicines. 
And it has been dosed 4 billion times in parts of the world where parasites are common, such as Africa, Central and South America. And it's been used to treat things such as, um, or treat and prevent river blindness and other diseases. Um, and it's been used safely in pregnant women, children, and infants, um, which, which is saying a lot. And so my history with um, Merck goes back 34 years when I was newly hired there. Um, and, and, and ivermectin was, was newly launched. And, and people might say, okay, well, it's an antiparasitic, so why should we use it for COVID-19? Well, it turns out in the pharmaceutical industry, a lot of drugs have application in multiple therapeutic areas. So just one quick example, the drug amantadine was originally developed to treat influenza, but Parkinson's patients taking amantadine for the flu uh, serendipitously noticed symptomatic relief of their Parkinson's disease. And now amantadine is regularly taken by Parkinson's patients. So anyway, with ivermectin, um, it works through a variety of mechanisms to kill uh, parasites. And some of those mechanisms um, have been found to attack single-strand RNA viruses, such as SARS-CoV-2, which causes COVID-19. And so um, this led scientists to test it in laboratories in vitro, and they found that it did, in fact, kill 21 different viruses um, in cell cultures. Um, and so, so, Sean, should I just keep going? Or? Oh, yeah, please. Please do, yep. Okay. So... Um, so because ivermectin has been around for decades, it's safe, it's an oral pill, it's cheap, it's off patent, um, it would be an ideal therapeutic for COVID-19 if it worked. So the question is, does it work? And um, here's where things get more interesting. So, um, so Merck came out against the use for ivermectin and said, Quote, it is important to note that to date, our analysis has identified no meaningful evidence for clinical activity or clinical efficacy in patients with COVID-19 disease. Now, the, um, the FDA was a little bit less circumspect, and the FDA tweeted, you are not a horse, you're not a cow, seriously, y'all, stop it. Um, but then the FDA also added a statement pretty much like I just read from Merck. Um, but the FDA went further, and the FDA put out a special warning to warn us against using ivermectin for COVID. Um, and it said, quote, you should not use ivermectin to treat or prevent COVID-19. Um, but this statement went on, and it, in, it, it included words and phrases such as serious harm, hospitalized, dangerous, very dangerous, seizures, coma, and even death, and highly toxic. So, but this is a drug that is FDA approved as safe for human use. So why would using this safe drug for a new, a new condition make it dangerous? Well, the FDA didn't say, um, and in fact, a normal person reading this might think that the FDA was warning against, you know, some criminal agent who had, you know, laced pills with poison. Um, and then further, the FDA claimed with no scientific basis that ivermectin is not an antiviral, notwithstanding its proven antiviral activity. So it, it would be nice to have somebody who's been within these organizations recently and involved in these decisions to explain them. But absent that, um, what we can do is we can explore some of the structural reasons uh, for why these organizations might have come out so strongly against ivermectin. And in, with the FDA, um, I think it's really two different things. It's the emergency use authorization 
and then off-label promotion. And so, so the emergency use authorization is a regulatory pathway that the FDA may use to authorize unapproved medical products or unapproved uses of approved medical products um, in an emergency to treat serious or life-threatening diseases where there are no adequate approved and alternative ther therapies. And so this might have given the FDA uh, a reason to, to want ivermectin out of the picture, because if there's no approved alternative therapy, then, um, then, then, then the FDA could encourage companies like Gilead and Merck and Pfizer to, to keep developing their products. Um, and, and what this really kind of implies is that the FDA knows how long the drug development process takes, and it takes too long. And so uh, the FDA, you know, maybe wanting to help during the pandemic, you know, wanted to get these new drugs out there. And, and also, I think, you know, it's possible the FDA wanted to incentivize the drug companies to keep researching these treatments because, um, you know, if the FDA said, okay, you know, maybe your drug will be approved in 10 years at long after the pandemic's over, then those companies would, would have very little reason to keep researching their, their treatments. Um, the second reason is off-label promotion. So once drugs are marketed, physicians can use them for any condition that they think will help the patient. And, and such usage is called off-label promotion because it's for a condition that's not specifically on the label of that drug that's been approved by the FDA. Um, and so while this, while this um, off-label prescribing is, is widespread and completely legal, it is illegal for drug companies to promote drugs for off-label conditions in any way, shape, or form. And during a particularly vigorous two-year period, um, the Justice Department collected over $6 billion in fines from drug companies in off-label promotion cases. So the FDA um, takes the position that it doesn't want to encourage off-label promotion, but it knows it can't, or off-label usage, but it knows it can't stop it. So if the FDA were to make a statement on the efficacy of ivermectin for COVID-19, it would pretty much have to come out neutral or negative because if it promoted a drug for an off-label use, um, there would be obvious hypocrisy involved. So with Merck, um, Merck faced that same off-label promotion issue. Um, you know, Merck is not going to promote a product and, and face substantial fines. Merck is too smart for that. Um, and also, uh, ivermectin has long since been generic, and so Merck doesn't make much money off it. But Merck was hoping that its new drug, um, uh, Lagavrio Molnupiravir, was going to be a successful, um, a successful treatment for COVID-19. Now, sometimes the sequence of events can um, prevent or work against the dissemination of balanced information. Now, now Charles, so, can, I, can I just step in and ask you a question? Sure. Because you were just offering an explanation, and I, and I appreciate you don't know, of, you know why the FDA made the statements that it did. But surely the FDA could have just simply said, ivermectin is not approved for treating COVID-19, and so we don't know um, whether it, it would be effective for that, which is very different than basically um, making false statements that it's dangerous, because surely it can't be dangerous with four, four billion doses out there, and most of them would be uh, non-prescription doses, just over-the-counter in other countries. So, you know, do your explanations are, are you, are you being a little gentle with the FDA in what you're you're suggesting to us? Yeah, I, I I really am curious what went on within the agency. Um, 
but I don't really know. Um, but but I do think that authorities in that position are they're culpable for what's happened um, because essentially they were spreading misinformation. Okay, and, I, and I'm sorry to interrupt you. We're then going to go on about the Together trial. Yeah. So. Um, yeah. So with the Together trial. Um, so sometimes the the sequence of events of how information plays out um, can work against the dissemination of balanced information. And so the TOGETHER trial was supposed to be the best and biggest trial testing ivermectin. But the, the press release came out uh, at least a couple of weeks before the full study was published. And so basically the, the main news organizations, or some of the main ones, such as the New York Times and the Wall Street Journal, the only information they had was from the press release, and so they basically parroted the uh, conclusions of the study from the press release. And, and that said that ivermectin doesn't work. And so that's, you know, most people just stop there. The problem is for those of us who like to scrutinize the studies, um, you know, anything that we found was going to be weeks later. And at that point, it would look like old news. And also the news organizations might be hesitant to, to publish that um, because it could make their initial articles look premature or perhaps incorrect. But anyway, um, after the full uh, TOGETHER trial was published, um, a number of researchers have looked into it, and they've identified 75 serious problems with this trial. Um, you know, even just a few serious problems would be cause for concern, but there were 75 problems identified. Um, and worse, the trial that we was that we were told proved that ivermectin doesn't work actually has results that suggest that it does work. So in the together trial, the patients who were on ivermectin had a 12% lower risk of death, a 23% lower risk of needing mechanical ventilation, a 17% lower risk of hospitalization, a 10% lower risk of extended ER observation or hospitalization. And then using the results of the trial, I was able to calculate the probability of the benefit to patients who were on ivermectin. And it ranged from 26%. So there were 10 different metrics in the trial. And the benefit ranged from 26% to 91%. So 91% was for preventing hospitalization. And for the most serious outcome, death, the probability was 68% that um, ivermectin was helping these patients. Now, an, another trial that got a lot of press was a trial that, that showed that ivermectin did work. Um, it was a trial uh, study by Elgazar et al. Um, but it was withdrawn uh, on cha charges of uh, plagiarism and faked data. And so this one study got a lot of press as if it was one of the only studies, but there's actually been quite a bit of research done on ivermectin for COVID-19. So there's been 95 clinical trials, 95 studies that have included 1,023 authors with patients in 27 countries and the number of patients, if you added it up across all the trials, is 134,554. And if you pool all the results, uh, the results suggest that ivermectin reduces the risk of death by 51%. So I just want to highlight that. So this, this implies that if everybody had access to ivermectin, the, the death rate across the world could have been half of what it was. Um, and 29% um, lower risk of mechanical ventilation, 41% lower risk of ICI, ICU admissions, 34% lower risk of hospitalization, 78% reduced number of cases, 
42% improved recovery and 45% improved viral clearance. And these results, so two of them are significant to P less than 0.01, and the, the other uh, five of them are significant to P less than 0.0001. So um, the other thing that the studies show is that earlier use is better. So for example, the benefit is 82% if it's given prophylactically, uh, 62% benefit in early use, and 42% benefit in late use. So 45 of these studies were randomized controlled trials, and 80 of the studies were peer-reviewed. And, and Charles, do you, can I just stop you for a second? So you're yeah. basically in that last slide indicating that the most significant benefit is for early use. And what I find curious about that is in Canada, I live in a province called Alberta, and the College of Physicians and Surgeons in Alberta for uh, concerning the COVID pandemic basically uh, made it clear to physicians that they would lose their license to practice if the physicians treated COVID early on. So it was really only possible for doctors who wanted to keep their license to treat um, COVID once the patient arrived at the emergency department. But what your analysis is suggesting is that that was completely wrong. Aside from the fact that it just sounds insane to tell doctors they can't treat an illness at its early stages. But, but am I correct that basically, based on your data, the uh, College of Physicians and Surgeons in, in Alberta are, were completely wrong on this? Yeah, I, I would agree with that. And um, if you look at all the treatments that have any kind of efficacy for um, ivermectin, and this actually goes more broadly to viral diseases, you want to treat the patient pretty soon after they're infected. Um, and, and in fact, if you treat them something like eight days after they're infected, the treatments basically have no benefit at all because this is a viral infection. It, it kind of comes and it goes. And if you don't get it early, you're not going to get it at all. So it, it's a pretty established principle that for a viral infection, you have to treat it pretty early. Okay. Um, so this just lends, you know, empirical evidence to that. Yeah, and I'm sorry for interrupting. It's just it was an interesting point you just made. So, oh, oh no, I, I appreciate your your comments and points. Um, okay, so we've talked about ivermectin. Now, there are some other drugs that have gotten clearance to be on the market to treat COVID-19, um, and I mentioned them in an earlier slide. But if you look at their efficacy, it's not as good as ivermectin. In fact, it's typically half or less as good as ivermectin. And, and further, the safety isn't as good. Um, so so with, with Paxlovid, 15% of the patients are contraindicated for Paxlovid which means that they should definitely not get it. Remdesivir is associated with acute kidney failure, and uh, molnupiravir is the most alarming, that it, it's associated with creating dangerous viral variants, and it's associated with mutagenicity, carcinogenicity, teratogenicity, and embryotoxicity, which in, in a little bit more plain English means that there are risks to human DNA. So, um, so these drugs don't work as well typically as ivermectin. They're not as safe and they also aren't as widely available and um, inexpensive. And yet they're permitted for treating COVID. Right, and they're, they're they kind of have the, um, the backing of the medical establishment behind them. So if I may, um, if you have any other comments no, or questions. No, no, carry, carry on. Thank you. Okay. So 
Um, I think to really understand how to interpret the results from clinical trials, we need to talk for a minute about the concept of statistical significance. And while it seems like an arcane and unimportant subject, um, we need to understand it because essentially it leads to many false conclusions, especially for ivermectin. So what I wanna do is show you the results of two clinical trials for ivermectin and show you the results and then show you what the study authors actually said. And so again, clinic, uh, statistical significance is a way that researchers try to make sure that the result is real and not due to luck. And so what they've settled on is a number of 95%. So they wanna be 95% sure that the results are real and not due to luck. But what they do is if, so if the results are good and the results are statistically significant, they say that the drug works. However, if the results aren't good or the results aren't statistically significant, they say that the drug doesn't work, which, which isn't true. So, so here's one example. So this is um, a study by uh, Ravikirti et al. And as part of the study, they looked at the need for mechanical ventilation. So of the ivermectin patients, only one out of 55 needed mechanical ventilation. Well, for the placebo patients, five out of 57 needed it. So if you just do the simple math, it looks like ivermectin reduced the risk by 80%. But the authors concluded the study did not find any benefit with the use of ivermectin and the use of invasive ventilation in mild and moderate COVID-19. And the reason they said that is because they were only 91. 2% sure, 91.2% sure that there was a benefit. In other words, it didn't match the 95% threshold. So here's another study. Um, so this is by uh, Rajter et al. And this is again, looking at uh, mechanical ventilation. And so in this case, um, patients on ivermectin so 36.1% of them improved and got off mechanical ventilators, whereas only 15.4% of, of the patients who got placebos got off the, the mechanical ventilators. So if you look at the results, you'd say that ivermectin benefit the, benefited the patients by 2.3 times what, what the placebo response was. But again, these authors reported no benefit and that's because they were 93% sure that the results were true, but they wanted it to be 95% sure. Now, now, why is this important and why does it affect ivermectin? Well, when a drug company does a clinical trial, it makes sure that the trial is big enough that it's gonna get statistical significance. But with a drug like ivermectin, where there's no real money behind it, it's up to, um, Kind of smaller organizations that don't have deep pockets to run the trials. And so they typically run smaller trials. And so frequently you'll get a result like this where the, the study authors, based on using statistical significance, will say that the, that the drug has no benefit. And so people who just look at the survey, of the, the summary in that, in that write-up of that study, will say, oh, ivermectin didn't benefit patients with mechanical ventilators. But if you look deeper, it actually does. And, and so I, I wanted to just point out how, um, how ridiculous this can be. And so, for example, imagine a pharmaceutical company testing drug X, and there's two researchers, one's at each, one, one researcher at each, researcher at each hospital. And they, they um, recruit 1,000 patients for this clinical trial, 500 at each hospital. So each, each researcher is managing 500 patients. Based on statistical significance, if they combine the results and publish together, they would say the drug works. 
if they, for whatever reason, maybe they had an argument over whose name should be first on the on the, the publication, you know, Jones and Smith or Smith and Jones, and they published separately, they would conclude that the drug doesn't work. So could it be that the drug works if these two authors get along together and publish together, and it doesn't work if they argue and publish separately? Well, that's ridiculous. And so what's happened with ivermectin is you've had all these little studies, some of which aren't statistically significant, um, but together they are. And so, um, so what I showed a few minutes ago, all those results when they're pooled are highly statistically significant. So um, in, in conclusion, and then, then if you'd like, I can talk about um, you know, possible solutions to prevent a problem like this in the future. But uh, in conclusion, whenever we have a pandemic, we need to rely on existing medications um, because new drugs just take too long to develop. And older drugs such as ivermectin, they're a known quantity, they're safe, they're cheap, the manufacturing is established. And then it's just a question of if they work or not. And with COVID-19, for ivermectin for COVID-19, the, the clinical evidence is, is pretty overwhelmingly positive. Um, and it's substantially better than for other treatments. And it's safer than other treatments. And it's cheaper than other treatments. And those who dissuaded us from using ivermectin are responsible for some of the problems that this caused. So, um, so I, I'd be happy to jump into possible solutions, or I don't know, um, well, I, Sean, if you have I questions. Do, or? I, I do want to actually ask you about that, but just following up on, on your last point about people being responsible, I, I mean, would it be fair to characterize it? You've, you've made it clear with your presentation that there's 4 billion doses, and am I correct that in many countries, uh, in fact, most countries where ivermectin is taken regularly, you, you don't need a prescription to get it. It's just over the counter. Is that fair to say? Yeah, I'm not an expert in that, but I believe that's true. Right. And and would it also be fair to say, like, literally, ivermectin is one of the safest drugs on the planet? I I think, yeah, based on what I know, I would characterize it as one of the safest drugs on the planet. So here we're, we're faced with a pandemic where the media is, is telling us we're in great danger. And from a safety standpoint, there would have been little downside, even if ivermectin wasn't as effective as, as the meta-analysis that you've shared shows it is. Right. There was very little downside risk to using ivermectin. And early in the pandemic, there were indicators that it did have efficacy. So. Um, the, the efficacy of ivermectin was pretty well established, well, established enough to make decisions around the mid, mid to, you know, three quarters of the way through 2020. So there was no reason after, say, um, the fall of 2020 to not be using ivermectin. Now, you had sent me some studies, and I'm, just, I'm not going to go through them, but I'm just going to indicate um, for the commissioners that we've entered them as exhibits. So you've sent me a, a study that you were an author in called Ivermectin and Statistical Significance. And I'll just ask um, if you would adopt that as true today. Yes. Yes, I would. And then we've also entered as an exhibit WI9C, a, um, where you're one of the authors, Ivermectin and the Together trial, and would you confirm and adopt that that's true today? Yes, yes, I will. And then we've uh, entered as exhibit WI9D uh, <coughs> a article where you're a co-author titled Setting the Record Straight on Ivermectin, and do you adopt that as true today? Yes, I do. So now I do want to ask you, and then I'll, I'll turn you over to the commissioners for questions, but how could we have done this better? Yeah, that's a really good question. And I've, 
I've got some ideas, um, and we could debate them probably for the next year, but let me just list them. So um, one would be allow drug companies to promote off-label uses. And, and what this really means is drug companies have information about their drugs for certain diseases. And right now, um, regulatory agencies like the FDA don't allow them to share that information. So it, it's really a form of censorship. Um, the next idea would be to allow drug companies to benefit from finding uses for existing off-patent drugs. So, for example, if Merck really found that ivermectin worked for COVID-19, essentially, it might not make a dime from that investment. But if we if we change the structure somehow so that Merck did make money, um, then Merck might have been as interested in ivermectin as it was in in um, in its own so, drug. So, can I just slow you down and spell that out? Because a lot of people might not understand what you're saying. So. When a drug still has a patent, an existing patent on it, and Merck holds that patent, Merck, Merck can charge um, a high amount uh, for the drug, and if somebody else wants to make it, Mac, uh, Merck has to agree, and then basically um, there would be a license fee paid to Merck. But when a drug like ivermectin is off patent, then any generic uh, drug company or any other drug company for that matter can also make it and there's no financial benefit for Merck, but you're suggesting in a pandemic, if somebody like Merck could say, hey, wait a second, this data shows that it works for ivermectin, that then if there could be some financial incentive, like a licensing fee or, or something like that for its use for something like COVID, that then that would be incentive for the drug companies to look into that and then also for them to share their data? Yes, um, exactly. What you just said, and 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 the the financial incentive could be a number of different things. It could even be like a like a finder's fee, or you know, some something that some organization pays to Merck, or or whichever company it is. It wouldn't mm -hmm. necessarily have to be Merck that would that would promote these um, uses for ivermectin. Right, but some financial incentive because we are dealing with, with companies that actually have fiduciary obligations to their shareholders financially. Right, and, and, and essentially the generic market is so competitive and the products are deemed uh, substitutable that there's no way for a company to say, our generic is better, or we know something about our generic, therefore you should pay us more money. Because as soon as that information's out there, then any customer could just use any generic and say, okay, well, this ivermectin's as good as that one, and I know that now it treats COVID-19, so why should I use Merck's generic? Right, now I interrupted you. It, it looked like you had a couple of more suggestions of how we could yeah. have done this better. Yeah, so, um, you know, there are um, government agencies around the world that do a lot of medical-related research, and, and the, the National Institutes for Health in the United States is one of those, and it has a budget, I think, of $45 billion a year. So it, it, in the beginning of the pandemic, if the NIH just said, hey, you know, we're going to find all these old medicines that potentially could be used to treat COVID-19, and we're going to do thorough testing of each one of them. So, you know, so these studies wouldn't just be dribbling in. It would be, you know, well-designed studies with plenty of people, statistical significance. Um, and just do that early on. And that could have had phenomenal health benefits. Um, so just to keep going down my list, um, I don't quite know how you do this, but prevent agencies like the FDA from attacking older drugs um, or or maybe a better way to do it is to allow dissenting opinions. So have have kind of a red team that's set up to challenge the um, establishment views. Um, and, and kind of another perspective on that is I think power within these organizations has become too concentrated. And so maybe spread it out some so there isn't so much 
emphasis on the one organization having the one viewpoint. Um, and, and kind of along those lines, maybe clean the house within these organizations that if there are people who are knowingly dissuading us from taking medications that have potential benefit, that's not who we want in charge of our public health organizations. Um, and then my last two points are to use statistical significance more wisely. Um, and then the very last point is something that has other benefits also, which is taking the responsibility for efficacy away from regulatory agencies like the FDA. And, and, and I'll just try to explain this very briefly. So, so um, from 1938 until 1962, the FDA only mandated safety testing for drugs. And then after 1962, the FDA mandated safety and efficacy testing. And it sounds like a wonderful idea, but economists have studied it. And it, it's pretty easy to make the case that things have been worse since 1962. Um, and so if the FDA just wasn't concerned about efficacy, but was concerned about safety, then any statements the FDA would have made about ivermectin just would have been about its safety, which I think is, is pretty clear um, that, that ivermectin is a safe drug. Wait, you, you put a lot of thought into these, and we thank you for that. Um, I'm going to ask the commissioners if they have any questions for you. Yep. And they do. Okay. Well, thank you very much for this uh, very uh, thorough presentation. I mean, I have a couple of questions. In fact, I, the way I look at that is it seems that um, these small molecule drugs that have uh, been around for a long time, uh, they, they lose their value after they're off patent. It, doesn't that call for a serious... Uh, I would say rethinking of the patenting of these molecules because why is it that in all of a sudden a chemical that has been synthesized and proven to be safe and effective in many indications would lose its ability to function in other indications knowing that it's generally the case that molecules that have been around for a long time have several indications. We know that from the practice. So it, why don't we come up with a different model? I mean, copyrights, for example, on, on books or music could, could last much, much longer than the, uh, the, the lifetime of a patent. Isn't that part of the problem we're facing? I completely agree. And I think, so when a drug goes off patent, it basically dies because um, there's no financial incentive to to look for other uses for that drug at that point. Um, so the so the only research that's typically done on drugs at that point is, you know, organizations that don't really have a financial incentive. Um, and so I, I think your point is actually very important. And if we could somehow figure out a way to incentivize drug companies or universities or research labs to, to research new uses for um, off-patent drugs, I think we would find phenomenal benefit because a lot of these drugs have to be useful for other conditions. And it, and it could be an issue with patents or it could be just some other kind of, um, you know, reward for finding something that's useful or, or you know, maybe have generics that aren't substitutable so you could you know actually say that this generic is different than this generic we'd have to think about solutions but the the potential benefit is huge another question that I had is you in the business of I would say advising 
different drug company to on strategy, I guess, to to deploy, to uh, develop new drugs, or maybe find new markets. Uh, I, I'm a little uh, concerned that the position you're taking right now would probably, uh, uh, I would say, uh, put your position in, on this marketplace at some some sort of a risk because of your position you're taking in that, because it it clearly goes against the business model of some potential client. So I'm wondering whether you're, you're concerned about that for your activity. Um, yeah, the answer is I'm not very concerned, and that's because I'd be very interested in finding new uses for generic drugs, but also I'm interested in finding uses for new drugs, and so that's what I help my clients with. I basically want good good medicines to be out there so that people live long and healthy lives, whether they're, you know, a currently generic drug or whether it's a, you know, some kind of cell therapy that's, that's coming down the road, that's some cutting edge cell therapy, for example. Thank you very much. You're welcome. So that, that's it for questions. Um, Mr. Hooper, on behalf of the National Citizens Inquiry, we sincerely thank you for attending today and, and sharing with us your valuable testimony. So thank you for your time and attention.